This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Before we begin, this series features remarkable stories told by remarkable people. Some of the events they discuss and some of the words they use to describe their experiences can be quite colorful. This program contains explicit language and descriptions of an adult nature. Listener discretion is advised. Stan volunteered his bed set for the support group on Camp Street in Salford, as it was. Um, Roy used to serve drinks wearing his latex outfit. Within literally less than a month, within two or three weeks of starting this group with four of us in the room, it was so crowded, people were sitting on the stairs, outside, and we just, you know, there is a huge, massive need for this. This is Stephen Whittle. Yeah, I think we haven't ever met before in person, but um, obviously I'm aware of your work. Um, so there's inevitably, as with the British trans community, some overlaps. Uh, <laughs> well, let's put it this way. We are much bigger than where I started, but it's... Still small, you know, compared to the rest of the population. We still can get to know so many of us easily. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) We've spoken to some wonderful people in this series, many of them campaigners and activists at the forefront of big moments in LGBTQ history. But it's easy to forget that history is much more than a string of dates or a list of landmark law changes. It's the stories of the people who lived through them. In Stephen's case... His story is so deeply entwined with the changes he has campaigned to bring about that it's hard to know where history ends and life begins. It's a tale which took him to the heart of the biggest legal battles in LGBTQ history and brought about changes in his family life he never dreamed possible. You're listening to Call Me Mother, a collection of conversations with queer elders. I'm Sean Fay. Each episode, I'll be talking with an LGBTQ trailblazer who has something important, interesting, or enlightening to say about what it means to be queer in the world today. By talking to older queer people, we want the stories in this series to create a sense of community across generational lines. By the end, our hope is that you have the language you need to grapple with new experiences by showing that you belong to a much broader history. This episode... What do you do when the legislation isn't on your side? Become a lawyer. I was brought up in Withenshaw, South Manchester. It's the biggest council estate in Europe at the time. We had a, lived in a council house. My parents had a two-and-a-half-bedroomed house, so they had five children and my grandmother living with us. And um, we had a bedroom with two sets of bunk beds and a cot And we had to move house when we were playing pirates one day in our bedroom, which we used to do, you know, when parents were still asleep. Um, And we all ended up jumping in the cart and it broke through. And my father realised he actually couldn't fit another bed in the bedroom. (laughs) 
And maybe his um, four-year-old son ought to be out of a cop by now. <laughs> My parents were obviously both very, very bright and very, very ambitious, and they both really achieved. My father had a very Victorian attitude to women's roles in life. When I was about 12, we had an old caravan. We, we went took it to Anglesey, got off, you know, on a campsite, and my mother came out of the caravan wearing a pair of slacks. And it's the only time I'd ever seen him hit her. You know, boys could go fly as high as they wanted to. Girls, what was the point in educating them? Because after all, they were going to get married to an engineer and have babies. My sisters would talk about their futures when they got married, when they had children, what they might work as. But my future was empty. I tried to think very hard about the things that they were saying and could I fit in with those models? And they just didn't work. And um, it felt endless. An endless, endless drudge through a sort of non-existent being. Life, life which wasn't mine. What was the backdrop like at the time for trans men when you decided to transition? I reckon I was probably number 13 or 14 of people going my way who received treatment in this country. Um, there was nothing. I mean, it, this was part of the problem. I didn't exist. I spent from being the age of 11 and catching an adult ticket for the library and sitting in the sort of corner with psychology and medicine and then later advancing to Central Library and reading everything. I didn't exist. I mean, every Sunday we used to go to my grandmother's and I would grab the news of the world and the Sunday people because they were the rags tabloids of the day, shove them inside, you know, the Sunday Express, so it looked like I was reading something respectable. And all the stories I found were about trans women, about Della Alexander, April Ashley, Roberta Cowell, that sort of body of people, nothing about trans men. For nearly two decades, Stephen didn't have any explanation for the alienation he felt every day of his life. It wasn't until he was 17 during a trip to the doctors for a nasty ear infection, that he discovered a potential future for himself for the first time. I sat in the doctor's waiting room and picked up a Woman's Realm magazine and opened it. And this was the first story I ever saw about somebody like me. I read this story and it was like... I could see a possibility. I didn't know how that possibility could arrive. And I remember walking home and my mum found me about six hours later in a state of delirium, in fact. And this ear infection had spread into the side of my brain. And so there were doctors out. And I, I spent 10 weeks lying flat on my back, being woken up twice a day to be dosed and fed something, I spent those 10 weeks planning my escape. And I realised I had to basically do my exams at school. I had to work hard, do my exams, I had to pass, I had to get out of home, and then I could start looking. And so that's what I did, and I made a plan that by the age I was 21, I was going to be living as a bloke, some way, shape or form, or I'd do myself in and set off to do it. 
This magazine article had shown Stephen the future, but it wasn't until a couple of years later, when he confided in a group of friends from a local feminist group, that his journey towards that new future could finally begin. They took me out to a bar in Ashton because they had seen somebody there who they had been told was a transsexual and they decided to engineer a meeting for me. And the name of this transgender woman? Caroline. We decided really part of the problem was the only place we could meet was in that club. So we set up the Manchester TVTS group. So it was a transvestite and transsexual group. We didn't know the word transgender at that point. The thing that Carol had managed to do was tell me that there was a doctor in Manchester who was providing treatment. So I asked my GP, who was as supportive, you know, there as possible, if she would send me to see this psychiatrist, which she did. And I sort of felt things were looking up. So about May 1974, when he said, start living as Stephen, you have a full-time job, and after three months, I will provide treatment. Stephen, who was working as a lab technician at Manchester Met at the time, was initially hesitant about explaining this situation to his colleagues. After a few weeks, my boss grabbed me at work and said, what the fuck is wrong with you? I've never seen such a mess. I told him. And he said, so that's it. You know, basically, you know, you need to do this thing. He said, you can sort that out. And he did. He literally went round. He was very strong in the union, told everybody what was going to happen, told me to take two weeks' holiday, he made them all practice saying, good morning, Stephen. Met me, took me to the pub as Stephen. Um, and I went back into work as Stephen. I just waited to go back to see the psychiatrist. Eventually, he saw me almost a year later. I'd spent nearly 12 months living as Stephen at that point. Finally, after a year of waiting, Stephen had gotten the referral he needed. He'd done everything he'd been asked to by his doctor. He'd made every preparation. The future of his gender identity now lay with this one psychiatrist. He was appalling. I think what he saw was a blonde, petite woman and he could not conceive of being any other way. And he just said he wouldn't treat me, that he'd never treat me, that I would never live as a man, and basically threw me out. It was a devastating blow, and the first of many setbacks for Stephen. After living as a man for over a year, he now struggled to get the treatment he had been promised. His GP agreed to give him hormone therapy, but without an approval from a psychiatrist, doctors repeatedly turned him down for other treatments. But Stephen persevered. And a few years later, at a former girlfriend's birthday party in 1978, he met a woman named Sarah, who would help him accept the person he was and the body he had. I walked into the kitchen where the young woman who normally babysat for them was stood, and I looked at her and thought, I want to live with you for the rest of my life. Didn't tell her, obviously, straight away, but invited her to my birthday party about three weeks later, and then de-invited her and then invited her again. <laughs> and then decided the answer to tell her was I invited lots of trans friends to my party, including the tallest trans woman I knew who was at least six foot six. And I thought, she must understand after this. 
And indeed, she rang me up the next morning saying, I realise two and two don't necessarily mean four any longer. I said, that's clever. And um, we became friends. Hung around with a gang of friends and about six weeks later, we had another party in London. And I said, well, I'm off to bed. Is anybody coming with me? And she was very forward and said, I think I might join you. And she was just fantastic. I remember being terrified of shaking my body and she said, look, you know, I'm going to take off my clothes. I'm going to trust you with my body. Well, I'm asking if you to trust me. Within the year, Stephen and Sarah had moved in together. In 1979, they settled down and began to build a life for themselves. And as their relationship grew more serious, they started to think about the future, a future that would see them start a family together. Stephen and Sarah tried fertility clinic after fertility clinic, but each time they tried someone new, they'd be turned down. Finally, after months of unsuccessful attempts, they found a Manchester specialist who was willing to help them. He said, um, I absolutely believe this is the right thing to do. He said, but I work in a system and I need to put this to the hospital ethics committee. But I really don't think it should be a problem. You know, you've got great recommendations. You know, we've got references from our counsellors, from friends who were, worked in psychiatry, from you know, my boss and everything else. The case was brought before the medical board. They reviewed Stephen and Sarah's case and wrote their response, referring to the couple as Mr B and Miss A. Doretta came back and basically said, Miss A will never be a good enough woman for us to consider her as a potential mother whilst she still loves somebody like Mr B. I've always said to people, you know, do anything you like to me, but make my wife cry, make my kids cry. You will never see fury like it, you know. It really will be fire and fury released. Stephen isn't someone who's easily daunted, but even for him, this latest rejection came as a serious blow. It had taken an enormous amount of determination and resolve for him to get to this point. And now, thanks to this backwards medical board, it looked like he was going to have to ready himself for yet another fight. They gave the traditional route one last try, but when their GP suggested he could have an affair with Sarah to help conceive a child, Stephen decided that was it. If doctors wouldn't work, he'd try books instead. So I went off and did the homework and discovered all sorts of interesting things, like the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act gave us a right of appeal against such decisions. The hospital were astonished to discover anybody had a right to appeal. And then they said, well, you can appeal anyway, but it, we can still make that decision. I said, well, no, you can't, because the decision you've made is that there is a class of people, women, who live with people like me, who you will never treat. It's akin to saying we will never treat people who are black, or we will never treat people who are Jewish. And they said, uh, uh, no, our decision is absolute." I said, and there is a wonderful piece of case law in which the court held that the refusal of a woman because she had once been a prostitute was discrimination against a class of people on arbitrary grounds and was unlawful, and we will pursue it. We got to the doors of the court, and of course they said, OK, OK, OK. 
After years and years of fighting, first in doctor's offices and fertility clinics, then through legal arguments, Stephen and Sarah would finally be able to start a family. The Manchester clinic that had first refused them did agree to perform IVF. Stephen and Sarah would eventually go on to have four children over the next several years. First Eleanor, then Gabriel, then twins Lizzie and Pippa. What was that moment like, to hold your child for the first time after such a long fight? I, I, I couldn't even conceive of being a parent myself. I'd, I'd put it off for so long that it was almost like it was going to surprise me because I'd never somehow adjusted to it. I lay down on the bed with this little baby in my hand and she snuggled here onto my chest, just thinking this is the most amazing thing. I, I can't believe that I've, I've got a responsibility for this. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Now that they'd been given a chance, finally, to live the life they'd always hoped for, Stephen, very easily, could have stepped back from any further legal fights. He and Sarah had a family now, and parenting is enough of a full-time job on its own. But, as you've probably guessed, he didn't do that. Stephen took the wealth of knowledge he'd built, all the case law, all the legal precedents he'd learnt, and put it to use for others. Could you describe a little bit about what prompted Press for Change to come into being? In mid-1980s, The Guardian outed Mark Rees in his case that went to the European Court of Human Rights. I remember feeling so shocked that they had outed him and given his real name in the newspaper because there was a name that was meant to be used in the court. I contacted Mark and said, you know, I've been reading about your case, I'm really interested because these are issues so close to, you know, what I feel and think. Um, And we became friends. And Mark arranged a meeting with his Member of Parliament, Alex Carlyle, who later became Lord Carlyle. And Alex said, you know, I'm very sympathetic to your cause and your issues, um, but you need to do the following things. And he said, first of all, you need an organisation. You need to form an organisation of some sort and you don't want the T word in anything that, you know, is emblazoned. So he said, you know, if they see the word, the transsexual word, you won't even be read, you'll just be dumped in the bin. We came up with the name Press for Change because what were our key concerns? Well, 
the press, how the press represented us. You know, what, what was it was about? It was about our change. What did we want? We wanted change. You know, we, and press for change just became a combination of words that actually summed up what we wanted. Press for change lobbied politicians. It took cases to courts to fight for the rights of trans people. And at this moment, Stephen's lives as a campaigner and a father collided. We took a case on behalf of my daughter to the European Court of Human Rights, which asked for her right to have a second parent on her birth certificate. Um, we lost the case, but by the time we reached the decision, we'd done a lot of politicking by that point. We knew a lot of how to do it, how to spin stories. So win or lose, we were going to stand proud as parents. Sarah says she remembers walking down to the nursery to collect Gabriel. She walked to the nursery gates. The, the, all the women were huddled up the top. And she thought, oh, dear. <laughs> One of the women came down and approached her and just said, um, we want to say how really, really sorry we are that you and Stephen lost your case. Obviously, we didn't know anything about it before, but you have our total support. We know what great parents you are, you know. And she said it was like the weight of the world dropped off her shoulders. Even though Stephen and Sarah had lost their daughter's case, they could see that the campaigning work they were doing was having a real impact. Despite the setbacks, Press for Change carried on working. It kept fighting for the rights of the LGBTQ community. And in 2004, the organisation achieved one of their most significant breakthroughs, the Gender Recognition Act, which allowed trans people to change their legal gender. Can we just um, talk about the Gender Recognition Act? Because that is obviously one of the, the central pieces of, of legislation that um, the Press for Change's work and your work led up to in 2004. It's also been one of the most contentious areas of the, the last few years and a huge anti-trans backlash in the UK because there was a touted reform of it. I was wondering if you'd just be able to sort of explain your perspective, your take on whether you think, you know, now it does need updating and, and what you felt about the, the backlash against that. I am absolutely convinced and clear in my mind, and it took a while to get there, that it needs updating. It's now based upon medical premises that are no longer valid. So the idea that people have to see an expert in the field, who's generally a psychiatrist, and be diagnosed as having this disorder. When we know, actually, we've moved way beyond that politically and through the courts, we acknowledge it is no longer a mental disorder. It is just a state of being, you know, and the vast majority of people give them the ability to transition in the way that they want to and their mental health problems disappear. The current requirement that people wait two years is just too long. I mean, as it is, people are waiting two years to get their first appointment at a gender identity clinic in many cases. So, you know, it's a, it's a complete sort of mishmash where the law and what's currently available through the NHS mashed together actually don't meet anybody's needs at the end of the day. So I think we do really need to move that forward. Despite some of the controversies around the Gender Recognition Act today, 
When it passed in 2004, it was a landmark moment for trans rights in the UK. And it was a hugely significant moment for Stephen, too. It meant that after 25 years together, he could finally legally marry his partner, Sarah. When the law changed, I said, so, please will you marry me? And she sort of said, I'm not sure, just let me think about it for a minute. I'm not sure if we've been together long enough for that. <laughs> and she said, yes, something small. I said, yes, just something, you know, registry office. Of course, the kids weren't going to have that at all. You know, we had about 200 people turn up for, in a church for 65. <laughs> they were out of the door, literally. They were literally, every door was open to fit everybody, you know, as much as possible. And it was a real community wedding. I realised that the act was never about trans people. It was about people who love us. Acknowledging their need to have the person they knew known by the state as well. You know, we've all been lonely at times in this year, and we've all had times which have felt very difficult, whether we've lost people or we've been ill ourselves. And it's at times felt like we're taking steps backwards, particularly because of the campaigning that there has been around our lives, um, the idea that we aren't as valid as other people. You need to sort of move beyond that. Make an assumption that you are as valid as anybody else. You may not feel it, but assume it. It's what those people who love us know about ourselves. Accept it, accept yourself. Understand that you've got a process to go to and you don't know where it's going to end. I never knew I was going to end up here when I started this. If somebody had told me 45 years ago, that I would have lived with a female partner for 40 odd years of my life, at the end of it still be madly in love with her, having raised four children together, having become a professor. I'd have told you you were bloody bonkers. You know, exploring this and being out there and having people encouraging me from my community made such a difference to my life and has brought real joy. I can honestly say that in the last six or seven years I have never been happier. And in many ways I'm getting old, my body's creaking, some bits of it are getting very complicated and problematic. But I don't give a shit about that because I'm just so happy to have lived this life as me. You've been listening to Call Me Mother, produced by Novel and supported by the Audio Content Fund. This series is presented by me, Sean Fay. It was produced and edited by Thomas Curry and Pippa Smith. Our executive producers were Max O'Brien and Sean Glynn. This episode was mixed by Joel Cox. Thank you so much for listening to this series of Call Me Mother. If you know of a queer elder whose story deserves to be told, please get in touch by emailing callmemother at we-r-novel.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.